I love this season and all that there is, and part of that is looking at Christmas sermons and trying to understand the Christmas story once again. And so we're going to do that. You're in Joshua 2. We'll get there in a little bit. But I want to read for you a little bit of Matthew chapter number 1. Uh, we started last week. If you weren't here last week, we started a series on ornaments of grace. And this is looking at the genealogy that Matthew gives us to give us the lineage of Jesus and how Matthew is trying to accentuate different uh, portions of Jesus' story leading up to Jesus and, and to show us the grace of God in this. So I will just, for, for information's sake, uh, try, try to help you understand. I know that when you read a genealogy in Scripture, that this dude begat this dude and this dude begat this dude, that that can be, they can be long, they can be seemingly tedious, I know that. And if you're not careful, you'll think, oh, let me just skim down the page so I get to some real action and I'll just skip over all those names. I don't even know how to pronounce them anyway. But remember what, why there's a genealogy in the first place. This is helpful, just kind of biblical information. You have to understand that Matthew is a Jewish person in the first century writing to a Jewish audience in the first century, and genealogies were very important. You could think of it almost as a resume. Nowadays, we live in a very individualistic society where our resume is our accomplishments, our degrees, our work experience. It's very individualistic. But if you're living in the first century and you're a Jewish person, your resume is, is really based on your family and based on your lineage. It's a very family-oriented, very communal society, and who you were connected to constituted your resume. So it's deeply important who you actually come from, and, and really, in a way, this is your resume or your genealogy is a way of saying this is who I am. This is who I come from, and this is Matthew trying to do this for us with Jesus. And it's interesting to note that just as people nowadays will tinker with their resume sometimes, which you shouldn't do, that's dishonest, but sometimes people will want to leave out that work experience or, or that, that, that is just a, a, a bad portion of maybe my, my background that I don't want people to know about. People would do that with their genealogies as well sometimes. We know that Herod the Great tried to disconnect and disassociate himself from certain people in his genealogies, and he tried to erase some of that, but Matthew does the complete opposite. Matthew, in a culture that your genealogy was meant to impress onlookers, it was meant to impress them with, with the, the high quality and the respectability of your roots. Matthew does the polar opposite, and he puts all through Jesus' family tree these what I would call ornaments, that these people that aren't necessary for the family tree, they're there as decorative. They're meant to accentuate the family tree of Jesus and teach us profound truths, profound truths. So let's read a bit of Jesus' family tree. I'll read it to you. It'll be on the screen. This is just riveting stuff. It, you just can't help but want to just get amped up by these five verses. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah and his brethren, and Judah begat Pharaoh and Zerah of Tamar. That's what we talked about last week. To say that Judah had Pharaoh and then Pharaoh eventually begets Esram, that was appropriate for the genealogy. But to say that there was Pharaoh and he had a brother named Zerah and mom was Tamar is, is completely out of the ordinary. A, a normal first century Jewish person would have read that and picked up on it right away. Like, why are you doing that? And we looked at that story last week, which is a messy crazy, bizarre story that shows us the grace of God in some really, really profound ways. But there's zero respectability in that story. There's none at all. And then he goes on to, to say this, that 
that actually uh, Pharaoh's Diz begat Esram, and Esram Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Here's, here's the second one that he mentions. It's completely unnecessary. Here's mom that Salmon begets Boaz, and he does this by Rahab. Rahab who? Well, Rahab of the Old Testament. Rahab the harlot is how she's known in several different portions of Scripture. Here is Matthew once again shining a spotlight on the genealogy, on the tree, putting an ornament on this, on this Christmas tree. And he's doing this to tell us, yes, these are the people that Jesus came from, but he's also doing it to tell us these are the people Jesus came for. This is who Jesus is after. This is what is happening. And this morning we get to just take Rahab off the tree for a little bit and just examine her life and what this teaches us about the grace of God and how we can learn from Jesus' lineage and his Christmas tree to help us understand our lives and the grace of God more profoundly. Well, you should be in Joshua chapter number 2, and we're going to read... Uh, about 14, 15 verses together. We normally don't read a chunk of Scripture uh, that big this quickly, but if you'll uh, follow along with me, I want us to get the background of the story and get a little bit of what the Scriptures say about Rahab, and then we'll begin to dissect it and, and get some truths and draw the grace out of this passage. So here's Joshua chapter number 2, and it's going to move through the story quickly. We won't read all of the story. Uh, the story really goes through the whole chapter, and then it even bleeds over into chapter number 6, and we're just going to read the first 14 to 15 verses to help us understand uh, a little bit more about Rahab and this character that, that uh, Matthew mentions in the genealogy of Jesus. So here's Joshua 2 verse number 1. It says that Joshua the son of Nun, so Joshua the guy that just took over from Moses, who's leading the children of Israel, they're about to uh, go conquer their first city that's across the Jordan River, which would be Jericho. And Joshua sends out of Shittim two men to spy secretly. Now, it's interesting that secretly, it means that these spies are going to go secretly to the place they're spying on. That would be normal to be a spy and for it to be a secret. But really, it means that it's secret from the nation of Israel. Why would he do this? Well, Joshua remembers 40 years prior that Joshua was a spy. Him, Caleb, and 10 other guys went to spy out the land, and they came back, and there was this big public forum on should we go or should we not? Is it, is it scary or is it not? And Joshua and Caleb said, we should go. God's with us. Yeah, it's scary, but we can do this. 10 other guys said, no, we can't do this. They'll squash us. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And everyone got scared and said no, and as such, they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. So Joshua doesn't want to make the same mistake twice. So even secret to the children of Israel, he sends them, not because he's wanting to know should we go or not he's just wanting to get a bit of intelligence and know how should we approach this what should we do here go go spy it out for me so Joshua sends these two men to spy out secretly saying go view the land even Jericho and they went and came into an harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there so we're introduced to Rahab and immediately we're given this description of her that she is a harlot Verse number two, and it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. So apparently these guys were not CIA trained because they weren't that great of spies. They find out that they're spies there. I don't know how exactly they knew. Maybe they were just really just out in the open. They just weren't great at it. But people, talk begins to happen. The king finds out, oh yeah, there's, there's these Israeli spies here trying to spy on us. So what does he do? And they even know that they're in Rahab's house. So verse 3, the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. 
Now we'll see in just a moment that this is at nighttime when they come, and Rahab actually takes these men and she hides them on top of her house on the roof. There's these kind of bundles of flax, and she kind of buries them under these bundles in the darkness and hides them under there. So here's Rahab's response in verse number four. The woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, there came men unto me, but I wist not whence they are. Hey, yeah, the guys were here, but I don't know where they're at now. So she lies, which isn't okay. There's been a lot of debate on if it was a care or not. It's not okay, but God's grace is going to cover this. But she lies and says, I don't know where they are. And verse number five, it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I, I want not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. She says, look, they were here, but about the time it got dark, this is how we know it is dark. She says, about the time it got dark, they were about to shut the gate. It was nighttime. Uh, they, they left. And I don't know where they went, but hurry fast. If you, if you go, you can probably catch them. You, you, you can get after them. Get a skedaddle. Get out of here. Go get them. So sure enough, the men do, and, and Rahab saves these men's lives in turn. Verse number six. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house. She had hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan and to the fords and to the pass. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone, they shut the gate. So the guys, sure enough, they take off, they shut the city gates, now the guys are safe. And before they were laid down, or before these two spies went to sleep, she came up unto them upon the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. Now that's an important phrase. These next few verses are very important for the story of Rahab. I know that God has given you the land and that your terror has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land, they faint because of you. For we have heard that the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. Now stop for a moment. That's 40 years ago. That, that didn't happen yesterday. That's a long time ago. The people of the land have heard the legendary stories, not legend as in fiction, but have heard the legendary stories of what God did for the children of Israel and how he brought them over, all these sorts of things, which is a bit ironic because the original spies that went to the land looked and said, oh, we should be scared of them. Meanwhile, all the people in the land are hearing the tales of what God is doing for this people, and they're actually scared of, of the Israelites. So there's this weird tension there that the Israelites fail to, to see and they end up wandering around for 40 years but they're not going to miss it this time because Rahab says look basically we're scared we know what the Lord's done we know how big he is verse uh, number 11 as soon as we had heard these things our hearts did melt neither did there remain any more courage in any man so we're very scared of you people for the Lord your God this is an important phrase he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Rahab professes her faith. And she says, your God, he's God. He is, he is the one true God. Earth, uh, above, beneath, doesn't matter. He's God. Then she says, now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brother and my sister. So, I, look, I've, I've done good to you. I've saved your life. Would you return the favor? Would you save me and would you save my mom and my dad and my brothers and my sisters? It, it's kind of fitting that she doesn't have a husband. Naturally, someone who has chosen the career path that Rahab has would not have a husband. But she says, my family, I want you to save them and deliver our lives from death. Verse 14. And the men answered hers, our life for yours, if ye utter not our business. Keep the secret. Don't tell people what we're doing. Don't, don't tell people all this sort of stuff. And sure, you got a deal. You saved us. We'll save you. 
They say, it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. And she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. The story goes on to say that the men escape the wall. They go back to the camp after three days. They tell Joshua, Joshua, the people are scared of us. God's given us the land. This is a sure sign. We should go. You go several chapters later, and you, and you get the story that you probably heard if you grew up in church, in junior church, or Sunday school or something, that they march around Jericho's wall six times. On the seventh time, they blow the trumpets, and the walls come tumbling down. But there's one house that does not, Rahab and her family. Joshua purposely sends the two spies back and says, hey, don't go into the city to conquer. You make a beeline for her, and you save her. She, she had faith and she trusted us so you go save her and sure enough Rahab and her house are saved and wouldn't you know it Rahab goes on to marry a Jewish man named Salmon and her and Salmon have offspring Boaz and in turn Rahab becomes one of the grandmothers of Jesus so what is it from this story why would, why would Matthew shine a spotlight on, on this outsider on this, on this harlot on this on this lady why would he put her in jesus's family tree i'll give you two truths there's more than two truths to glean but i'll give you two this morning first is a is a very simple truth but it's the core truth of all of the bible and that is that god offers salvation by faith it's through the grace of god that salvation is offered by faith now don't yawn at that if you've been saved by faith and you know that to be true don't yawn at that don't let that get old ephesians 2 tells us that it is only by the grace of god that we are offered salvation and it is through faith in jesus christ and believing in him that we can partake of the offer of salvation freely and that gift can be yours but we know that this is the major theme of rahab because there are writers in the new testament who write about rahab and they say exactly that they say the moral of the story of Rahab and the story of grace that is there is exactly that she had faith in God and in turn God saved her from pending judgment and saved her from pending doom. And because of her faith, she and her family were spared. And this is meant to accentuate the faith that we have and how God offers us freely salvation through his grace. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith says, by faith, the harlot Rahab perish not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace what, what is that saying rahab had faith without it she would have perished but she did not perish because she had faith she was saved she was not with those that did not believe she actually was part of those who did believe faith was there and as such she was saved what Rahab is, is she is in embryonic form. What is going to happen largely with Christ and in the offer of salvation that will be extended to all mankind, that we through faith in Christ can partake of the grace of God and can have right standing with God, that, that Rahab is this early prototype of that to show us the grace of God in a profound way that was at work back then, that people are saved always through faith. It's through faith and it's through the grace of God that we're saved. And it's not just faith, but Rahab had real faith is what James says. James says that her faith was, it was real, it was tangible. He says this in James 2.23, Likewise, was, was not also Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. What's he saying? He's using Rahab as an illustration. That girl had faith, and she didn't just have some faith that she, that she attested to, that she said, that some sort of, you know, cognitive understanding of what faith would be, but she actually had it real, 
tangibly, she had faith that, that was working, which is always true of saving faith. It will work. And he says this was exemplified in her in that she put her life on the line and lies slash vouches for these guys and puts herself in a very vulnerable position where she could potentially be killed if this is found out about her, that her faith moves into action and there's actually something substantial there. And you find in chapter 6 of Joshua that it's through her faith that the walls come tumbling down and she and her family are saved, not because she deserves it, not because she had earned it, not because she had some, some semblance of, of morality that, that allowed her to, to partake in God's grace, but it's God's grace offering this to her freely, freely to her, and she exhibits faith, and as such, she gets to partake in this. I read not too long ago about Martin Luther who lived in the early 1500s, and, and Luther, many of you would know, was a Catholic monk, but he wallowed in misery. And Luther described his, his own life, and he said that no pen could describe his eternal torture as he piled penance upon penance in an effort to save himself, which he could not do. He says, it was torturous to my soul to try to earn right standing with God myself, to try to be moral enough, to try to... to to exhibit some sort of, of morality that would somehow earn myself credit with God or right standing with God, that it was torturous to think, have I done enough? Have I confessed enough? Have I done enough penance? Ha do I have absolution? Is this here that, that I could never really get a handle on? I could never really know if it was there. And it tortured my soul and it drove me deeper and deeper and deeper into monastic piety where I would live this life secluded from others and I would, I would try to do everything I could to try to earn God's favor. But, but I felt like I could never get there. And this driven monk who wanted so badly to have standing with God in a right way, happened upon Romans 1 where he read, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. It is from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And Luther read those words and he realized it is not work to work that I earn God's favor. It's not penance to penance. It's not indulgence to indulgence. It's not absolutions. It's not earnings. It's not a wage. It is faith to faith. And he, and he entered into uncharted territory, but after years of torment, he finally came to realize what would, what would be known as, as sola fide, the, the faith alone. This was the cry of the reformers, and this was a new discovery for Luther and in turn the reformers, but really all of this was in actuality was an echo down through the halls of history and down through the pages of scripture that, that is even back in Rahab that is, that is telling us that salvation is through God's grace and it's by faith. It's by our faith in him alone, and he freely and willingly gives us what we do not deserve. But if we put our faith in him, he gifts to us salvation. And Matthew purposefully places this ornament on Jesus' family tree to teach us once again that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And all those who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will find that they can have forgiveness of sins and that they can be saved. And this is a simple truth of the Bible, but... Perhaps this morning there's someone or someones in this room that need to do just that, that the most profound lesson you could ever learn from Rahab and the most profound lesson you could ever get from Christmas was just simply that God wants to save you. And if you'll put your faith and trust in him, he graciously will. It's, it's, it's not because you've done something to earn it, but he, through his grace, will do that. If you have never accepted him, I pray that you will. But I think that the grace of God is at work in at least one other way here in the story of Rahab. And I would say it this way. God's grace obliterates the walls of separation between us. Who's Rahab? I think for a moment. Who's Rahab? 
When Matthew writes his genealogy and he purposefully puts this ornament on the tree and he puts Rahab, who is she? Let's say first she's a gender outsider. You don't put women on your Jewish family genealogy. But Matthew does. He puts Rahab and he puts four other women on there as well, five in total. He puts them purposefully there. But, but for all intents and purposes, this is completely unneeded and she's a gender outsider in this, in this scenario. Who else is Rahab? Well, she's a racial outsider. Rahab's a Canaanite girl. She's not Jewish. She doesn't have Jewish ancestry. She's, to the Jewish people, she would be considered unclean, not allowed into the temple to worship, this this racial outsider. Who else is she? Well, she's clearly a moral outsider. She's known in her life through the centuries is she's not just known as Rahab, and she used to do some stuff, but literally her, her name becomes kind of this title of Rahab the harlot. She doesn't have the most respectable of career choices, and she has no ability to claim moral high ground on anybody. She is someone that, that would, you would not want to put on your family tree in, in most cases. Think about what, what Matthew did last week when he put the story of Tamar. And now he's going to put the, the story of Rahab. Later on, he's going to put the, the story of Bathsheba. What is Matthew doing? He's putting the most the most sordid and immoral stories of all of the Bible on Jesus's family tree. What, why would he do this? Why would he give us this, this, this gender, racial, moral outsider and bring them into Jesus's family tree? What, what does this mean for us? I think at the very least it teaches us that the people who are excluded by culture at large, the people who are excluded by, by quote unquote respectable society are included in Jesus's family tree. And Rahab is forever a testimony that no matter, no matter who someone is, no matter what someone has done, no matter where someone has been, that, that God can save them and God wants to welcome them into his family. There was with the Jews, there was a concept of ceremonial uncleanness. And it went like this. If you were holy, if you were separated, if you were good, you had to avoid contact with the unholy. The unholy are, are, are sort of contagious and if you come into contact with them, then, then naturally you would have to go through some sort of purification. You just, you just want to avoid them altogether. This is why Paul will write in, in Galatians that he had to withstand Peter. Like St. Peter, you know, the guy that we love, Peter, follower of Jesus, stalwart of the early church. That he had to withstand Peter to the face when Peter came came and he saw Paul eating with, with Gentile people and, and Peter refused to eat with them. He wouldn't socialize with them. He wouldn't be around them. And Paul said, I had, to, I had to look him in his face and say, what are you doing? What is your problem? Do you not see that the gospel has changed this? Well, Peter had been taught his whole life this idea of ceremonial uncleanness. And I'm a Jewish person and I don't socialize with them. I don't rub shoulders with them. I don't eat with them. I don't be around them because they're unclean and they're unholy and they may rub off on me. So I want to avoid them. And you find in the gospel and in Jesus that Christ turns those tables upside down. You find that, that his holiness and his goodness is not contaminated by contact with us. It's quite the opposite actually. That we in our contamination and our sin and our uncleanness and our unholiness actually come into contact with him and he touches us and we become clean through his touch and you find that the gospel is reorienting all of this. It's changing all of this and breaking down these barriers and you see in the story of Rahab that no matter how morally stained you are, he can make you pure as snow. 
He, he can clean you up, and not only can he clean you up, but he wants to clean you up. And in God's family, it's not the good people are in and the bad people are out. It's that all people are bad, and they're all welcome at the table, and all can sit in unison. And God, by his grace, is inviting Rahab into the family. God is no longer saying you're on the outside, but you are here, and you are accepted, and you are, you are part of the family. And in so doing, he offers the same thing now to everyone, that there are no more outsiders there are, there are no, no one that should be marginalized, that should be trivialized, that, that, should, that should be put on the outskirts. Not at all. The gospel changes all of that. I'll give you a few New Testament passages to illustrate this, and you can follow along in your, in your handout if you want to. But you find, this may sound like, oh, okay, that's a good reminder, you know. Uh, d- don't, don't marginalize people. Don't, don't be racist. Don't, those sorts of, but this is, this is more than just, oh, okay, a healthy reminder that, that all of us just have a firm handle on in the room. I dare say that if, if the early church needed to be reminded of this over and over and over and over again, I dare say that is because the church through the centuries has needed to be reminded of this over and over and over and over again. I'll give you a couple examples. Ephesians. Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, It's to the praise of the glory of God's grace that he hath made us accepted in the beloved. What, what is this saying? This is saying that all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are accepted by him. That no, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, that they are accepted and they are, and they are loved. And God's acceptance of us is not based on any criteria of class or socioeconomic status or, or race or upbringing or your pedigree or none of that. It's not based on any of that. It's based on faith alone. And, and Paul writes of this and he says the fact that he does this, the fact that he accepts us, the fact that we're all welcome in unison, he says this is to the praise of the glory of his grace. He's saying that is the grace of God, and that grace is glorious, and that glorious grace I will praise him for. That he has graciously extended the offer to all, and, and, has, and there, there are no exclusions, there are no exceptions to the rule, there is no one who's an outsider, that he's graciously done this, and we find that to be glorious, and we will praise him because of it. This is what he says to the Galatians, ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? All the barriers are gone. He does his best to list the first century barriers. But he says all the barriers are gone. They're obliterated. The human constructs are torn down. They are over. If you're, if you're halfway honest, you will... Do life, with simil- do life with people that are similar to you. you will, you'll tend to live in neighborhoods with people that are a bit like you. You'll be friends with those that have the same interests as you. You'll hang out with those who, who think like you. And that's not necessarily wrong. That, that's an okay thing. But it is wrong to then in turn say, those are the only people that I want to love. Those are the only people that I will accept. Those are the only people that I want to be around. That is wrong. And the gospel teaches us that what should happen, especially inside of the church that proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ, is that it affects every strata of society. 
And the gospel should and does have a way of taking society as a whole and creating a church, creating a family of believers where there is a very eclectic bunch of people that are from all different backgrounds and all different upbringings and, and all different walks of life and all different aspects of, of I was moral or I wasn't moral or, or understandings and a way of bringing them all together and amalgamating them into the body of Christ to say, we have Jesus, he is our common denominator, and as such we're banded together. It should be very normal for a church to be a place where there are people with criminal records and there are people that if they got a speeding ticket, they would weep uncontrollably because they've never had any running with the law at all. It, that should happen because the gospel hits all strata of society. It should be very normal in a church to have people that have a background of a life that is completely sordid and completely, I lived apart from Jesus, I didn't know Jesus, I partied it up, it was wild and it was crazy and there are stories that I don't want to tell or talk about and there are skeletons in my closet and then there's another batch of people who your mom gave birth to you like in the nursery. They created this little space so she didn't even have to go to the hospital, she could just give birth to you in church because that was somehow more holy or something. Both of those people should exist inside of the church. There are those that want to, based on who you are as a person, you want to dig into Scripture and you want to mine it and you want to understand all the intricacies. And there are other people that say, you know what, I'm not really sure about all the intricacies, but I know that Jesus has changed me and, and you need to believe in him because he's awesome and let me just tell you about how good he's been to me. There, there should be, the gospel should bring together people that, that want to go highbrow and your idea of a good time is eating caviar and going to the opera and lowbrow where your idea of a good time is eating mac and cheese and watching NASCAR and you put them all together inside of the church and say, you know what, it doesn't matter that we have differences, it doesn't matter that I normally wouldn't hang out with you, but here we are together and you love Jesus, I love Jesus, you want to worship Jesus, I want to worship Jesus, let's be together, we're on the same team, let's, let's pray, let's worship, let's evangelize, let's do this. The gospel has a way it should of penetrating society and causing people to come together in unity whereas otherwise they would not and, and the story of Rahab is meant to at least teach us this of this outsider who's being brought into the family and being welcomed despite the fact that she would have never fit in otherwise via the grace of God it's, it's all through his grace this is what Paul says in Colossians where there is neither Greek nor Jew nor circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all in all. Paul is addressing the, the bias in the early church, and he says this. It's not Greek nor Jew. It's, 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 not your, it's not your ethnicity. It's not your race. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not your religious upbringing. It's not barbarian. Barbarians were the, the brutish, crazy people, the, the wild child. It's not, oh, they're the wild child. He says Scythians. Scythians were, the, were the, the backwoods, the uncultured people. It's not, oh, they don't have enough education. He said, no, no, it's not that. It's not bond nor free. It's, it's, not, it's not your social status. Let me modernize what Paul is saying for you. In Christ, there is no black versus white. There is no I grew up in church versus I, versus I didn't have any church background at all. There is no, well, if you only knew what they used to do and the stories that they have and how they used to party. Oh, if you only knew how redneck they are and how, how, what, what the education they had. They dropped out of high school when they, when they were in 10th grade. There is no rich versus poor. There is no Republican versus Democrat. But Christ is all and is in all. That's what he's saying. He's saying those, those borders are done. They're over. They're gone. The gospel obliterates it. It tears all of that down. And then he says this. He says, if the barriers are gone, if that is true, if Christ is all and is in all, then what should we do? Well, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, 
humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, putting up with each other, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, it doesn't matter. As Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. What is, what is Paul saying there? He's saying, don't tell me that you, that you love them and then you thumb your nose at them. Don't, don't tell me that you love them or that the gospel has done this and you're all the same and then think less of someone because they didn't grow up how you grew up or because of the color of their skin or because they don't have enough money or, or whatever it is. Don't tell me that, that you care for them and then, and then treat them differently based on whatever set of criteria you want to come up with. He says, no, that, that is not how the gospel works. That is not how Jesus works. He says, if you're looking for a criteria to judge someone by and you're looking for a filter to process and to categorize people into, here's your filter. Is that person worthy of Christ's shed blood? Did Jesus die for them? And if he died for them, then apparently they're valuable to Jesus. Apparently he offers grace to them. So by what criteria would you come up with on your own that you would exclude them or, or marginalize them or somehow relegate them? You smarter than Jesus? That's, that's what he's getting at. You, you, you outwit God on this one? No. If he has accepted... If he has brought in, if he has taken a Rahab who was outside in every way, she checked none of the boxes, and to bring her into the family and say, you are all one, then, then why in the world would we as, as Jesus followers not do the same? This is what Revelation says. I love this because it tells us how it's going to be, and in turn it tells us how it should be. Here's what Revelation says. After this I behold, lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and all kindreds and all people and all tongues, they stood before the throne of God, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. You know what that implies? First of all, it implies that white people are a minority in heaven, but that's just for free. But most importantly, it implies whether you like it or not, we're all going to be worshiping together one day. We're all going to be gathered right around Jesus and we're going to be worshiping him, and we're going to be loving him, we're going to be praising him, and we're all going to be together, so just do that today. Just live that out today. If it's going to be that way, then let heaven come down and, and get, the, get the kingdom down here and, and, and do that here on earth as it's going to be one day. Several people, some even in this room, have asked me over the past maybe six, seven months, when we do our little announcement videos, we normally say on there, you know, welcome to Harvest, this is a safe place. What does this is a safe place mean? And I, I didn't write the script for that, so I'm not entirely sure, but I've, I've told people, well, I think it means a lot of things. Does it mean that we try to take security seriously and you have to check your kids in and get a tag for them so a stranger can't come get your kid and all that sort of thing? Yeah, it means that. But I think at its core what it means is that this is designed to be, by God, this should be a place where it's different than, than the rest of society and the rest of, and the rest of the culture and the rest of the world. This should be a place where you can come and you don't got to worry about that mess and that crud that's out there. This should be a place where you come and there, there are no exclusions, there are no stiff arms, there are no I think I'm better than you, there are no, I, well, well you're, you're not good enough or, or you're too good or there, there's none of that. This should be a place where we come and we understand as the body of Christ that we don't just tolerate each other, although we do have to put up with each other sometimes. We don't just tolerate each other, we love each other. And there's a huge difference. 
There's a huge difference because the love of Christ breaks down all those barriers. It breaks down all those constructs. It eliminates the prejudice. It eliminates the snobbery. It eliminates the bias. It says away with all of that stuff and live as Jesus lived. In the story of Rahab, although these truths seem elemental, these truths are profound and we need to be reminded of over and over and over again. And we need them to attack our hearts over and over and over again. It teaches us exactly what, what the gospel teaches us, what even Ephesians says, that we're saved by grace through faith. It's, it's the grace of God that allows us entrance into his family, and it's only our faith that gets us there. Nothing that we do, just faith. The, Rahab teaches us what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, that we praise God's glorious grace because he has taken everyone and made them all accepted in the beloved at the same time and welcomed them all together and has torn everything down. And I don't, I don't know your story. I don't know your frame of mind. I don't know what you posted on social media. I don't, I don't know what your grandmother or grandfather said, that they were good people, but it would embarrass you to say what they said or how they thought. I don't know all that. All I know is what, is what the gospel teaches. All I know is what the story of Rahab teaches, and that is that we're saved by grace through faith, all of us the same, equal. And as such, she, the outsider, is welcome into the family, and there are no more outsiders, that the family is wide open, and we all come together, and there should be a unity and a camaraderie inside of a church. And I honestly believe that our church does have this. I think that those, maybe if you've been new over the past week or two or the past few months, generally people pick up on, you guys kind of love each other, and it's like a big family reunion, and there seems to be fellowship, and there seems to be a bunch of welcoming people, which I commend you, and I love that about our church, but it should be that that grows and grows and grows so much so that a community at large outside of our church would enter in and say, there is something like weirdly different about that place that is awesome. There is something there that I don't get in my workplace, that I don't get in my neighborhood. That, that I don't get at, at the Elks Lodge or whatever it may be, that there's something there where, where they just love and they care and there's no bias, there's no prejudice, there's no judgment, there's, a, there's just a bunch of people that love each other and understand that we are all have the, common, the same common denominator in Jesus and we're together. That should be the case and that is meant to be magnetic to people that don't know Jesus. That is meant to be attractive. That is meant to be something that the church lives out. So, Whatever it is in your own heart and in your own life, maybe there's a reminder there where you just need to say, okay, I need to be sure that this is me. Maybe there's something there where you say, you know what, I've, I don't act that way, and there is something, or I do have a bone to pick, or there is, there is something there where I tend to look down on them. Maybe it's because oh, they think they're high and mighty and they have, they have so much education. So the people that have more education than me, I look down on them. Maybe it's you have more education, you look down on the people that have less education. I don't know what it is. All I know is all of it's trash and it shouldn't be. And part of the grace of God is meant to teach us in Rahab's life that here is this outsider, that all of the walls get broken down. In Jericho, literally, yes, but metaphorically speaking, all of our human constructs come tumbling down. And there, his grace is pervasive. And there is where unity should exist. You love Jesus? Yeah, me too. You have faith in Jesus? Yeah, me too. Well, what if they don't have faith in Jesus? What if they don't love Jesus? Well, he told us what to do with that one too. That you even love your enemies. You bless them that curse you. God is no respecter of persons, is how James puts it. God doesn't look at us and judge us by what we humans judge each other with. 
And he says, as such, you don't do it either. Don't learn from Rahab the grace of God to save you, the grace of God to bring together a unity that can only exist in Jesus Christ.